Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is Equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, how are you doing? How is life? How is the week? The week is good. We have a new president, so it's actually been fun to be on Twitter recently. I love that it's part of our job. And I'm having a double espresso ice latte with my new Nespresso machine. So I'm doing all around good. I approve of all of that. <laughs> Wait, but have you had cheese-covered ramen yet in your cuisine capital home? Danny is alluding to Skyline Chili, which is my favorite dish of the entire Midwest. Not ramen, just spaghetti, actually, <laughs> but it's still cheese. Cheese covered spaghetti. <laughs> That's very different. And that voice you hear is none other than Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, uh, aside from your culinary jokes, how are you doing? You know, I'm looking forward to talking about cars, a topic I know a lot of considering I haven't driven a car since 2015. Yeah, I'm actually a car enthusiast, even though I don't drive really at all. But we're going to kick off with something that just came up. Hims is going public via a SPAC, Danny. And so what is Hims? And uh, does a SPAC here make sense? Yeah, this was breaking news right before the show started, but Hims, which originally started with an erectile dysfunction ED medication and has expanded to a, a portfolio of brands, Hims and Hers, was going public with a $1.6 billion deal via a SPAC called Oak Tree. And they last raised $1.1 billion Series C in January 2019. So huge win here. Obviously, other companies in the space like Roe have also had serious valuation increases. So looking forward to seeing them launch onto the public markets. I'm excited about that. We're going to put that aside for now and go from the public markets to the private markets and stay here for a bit. There's a lot that's been going on, and we're starting to get a look into what happened in Q4 in the venture capital world, which of course caps off all of 2020. And we pay a lot of attention to venture capital numbers because people tell us things, and sometimes those things align with reality, and sometimes they don't. The data, generally speaking, doesn't lie, so it provides a good baseline comprehension for what was happening. Looking at the 2020 data, this is via PitchBook and the National Venture Capital Association, or NVCA. 2020 was bonkers, guys. I mean, there was $156.2 billion invested in U.S.-based startups, and that's about $428 million a day, which is, I mean, on one hand, it feels too high, but then you consider how many times we hear about mega rounds, they add up, and you end up with a number that is just absolutely bonkers. Natasha, if you would have had to guess beforehand, how much money would you have guessed was invested per day into these US-based startups? I would say I wasn't super surprised by the headline. That was my first reaction. It definitely felt that way recording this show each week. It's helpful to know that the things we think are true are true. Right. Because I think that's going to change within certain categories like X is zooming and this is blowing up. I don't think that's going to happen forever. So we should keep doing pieces like this. I'm going to keep doing this every quarter. But what's funny about this is like normally these are some of the least popular pieces that I write. Every quarter I write them and every quarter everyone ignores them and I keep on doing it. 
This quarter, though, people paid attention. They showed up. Thanks, guys. I appreciate all the reads. Made me feel really good inside. But there's even better numbers. Danny, there were 321 rounds worth 100 million or more in the U.S., what we often call mega rounds. So just under one per day. An all-time record, I think, in terms of dollars and uh, number of rounds in these mega rounds. Can that keep up in 2021, do you think? I think it can. I mean, I think the question is, you know, we mentioned the Oak Tree SPAC with HIMSS. I think one of the questions is, do these SPACs take out all those private rounds that normally would have happened in the venture capital world and just put them under the public market bucket, right? So all that mezzanine capital, all that pre-IPO fundraisers, which are the biggest rounds for these companies. You know, if all these companies go the SPAC route in the next two years, and there are hundreds of SPACs looking to do precisely that, you can imagine that number just going down by the definitions that we're using for private and public markets. Alex, you had a line in there that said the amount of liquidity that American startups generated was around $290.1 billion. And so how did you define liquidity? Is it just exits in public markets, M&A? What were the things that were going into that number? And maybe it could have been slightly more precise in my wording. That is liquidity earned by US-based VCs. And so ah. the, the, the issue is there may be some slight discrepancy between which pool of startups we're referring to, but I included it simply for scale. Because generally speaking, we think about VC money going in. We don't talk enough about VC money coming back out, going back to the LPs, the foundations, the wealthy families, et cetera, that fund the players that fund the startups that we talk about. But to see that number be roughly double the money that went in last year shows to me that there was a wave of returns, implying that a lot of VCs returned capital to their LPs and overall looked pretty good. And just to keep us moving along here, I'm going to note a couple of quick things and then throw back to Danny. But Inside deals did expand. We talked a lot about this in 2020, investors doubling down on their own investments. That actually did show up in the data. So reality matching what we're being told. Boston did do well, which Natasha and I have been talking about for the second half of 2020. That did bear out in the data. And also, you know, there was just a lot of money going into unicorns. About half of all dollars in the US went into these super giant rounds. So that's a rough picture. But Danny, before we put a bow on it, go for it. Fintech is one of those categories that you were looking at as well, Alex, on a different piece, because apparently fintech is core to a lot of the numbers that we saw last year in, in Q4. Yeah. And so I, I think if you want to understand the broader picture of the U.S. venture capital market, that it's getting larger and it's getting later, fintech maps to that. So when you consider kind of where the money is going in fintech, it is trending towards larger, later rounds. And that's why the SPAC point that Danny brings up is very interesting. If we do see the top 10 or 15, say, fintech startups get SPAC'd to the public markets, that might delete an enormous chunk of the super giant rounds, these mega rounds that might happen. And then we could actually see fintech fundraising fall, even though fintech itself would still be rather healthy if all the dollars were still flowing into seed A, B, and C rounds. There's nuance to the data, but certainly it's a great time to raise money. And if you're thinking about it, probably now is the right time to go about it. I want to run something by you guys, because this has been a conversation on VC calls recently. Beyond the, it's a great time to raise. They're also talking about entire portfolios in aggregate all doing well. And I was curious, is that normal? Like, I know every VC will say that, but it feels like we're in this moment where it's not hard to do well as a fintech company because we're in a bull market and there's a lot of spending happening, at least in certain fintech companies. And so a part of me is like, okay, if I'm investing in a bull market, I'll feel like a good investor in the public markets. Do VCs just naturally feel like they're good fintech investors because it's not hard to make a mistake right now? <laughs> I'm also curious, like, are, are they referring to like startup performance of fintech startups or are they referring to their investment performance in fintech startups? Like what's doing well, the startups or their investments? Because they're different. The startups that they're invested in. Huh. Let's presume that VCs are rational for a minute. <laughs> yes, fair. I'm not being rude. Like investors in public markets are often irrational. Let's just presume that the rational actors in the VC side. There were 938 US-based fintech rounds last year worth $20.5 billion. The dollar amount was an all-time record. The rounds actually slipped a little bit. And that's where you get those larger rounds because there's fewer rounds and more money. 
those large rounds, of course, led to larger valuations. If you just look at fintech valuations in the U.S. on a median basis in 2020, they rose from 20 to 30 million, which is up 50% in a single year. And on an average basis, the numbers are even more extreme, going from 213 million to 461 million. Again, just crazy numbers. I think one of the big open questions is, what does the J curve look like for a lot of venture firms? Mm. You know, I think what you're seeing is so many rounds get upticked that there isn't as much of a J curve. In the old days, if you will, like you would do these rounds and like a third would fail by the next round. Right. And what we're seeing is everything's getting funded, right? You know, I'm in a former employer's portfolio still. I think there's only one or two exited companies out of several dozen. And that's five, six years on now. So I don't think that's unusual for top funds these days. And the question is, you know, when does the data start to arrive of like, was I right in fintech? Is it going to be in 2022, 2025, 2027? But the good news is, is a ton of stuff is getting funded at the seed stage. And it looks like there's going to be even more action in fintech because Plaid is initiating something new than Natasha, you just wrote up today. Plaid, which we obviously talked about last week when it announced that it's no longer going to merge with Visa in that $5.3 billion acquisition. The now for sure independently owned business is launching Finrise, which is an incubator for underrepresented founders working on fintech companies. They're targeting three to five startups with between pre-seed and pre-series B, and it's a nine-month incubator. So imagine a intensive boot camp for a part of it, a lot of mentorship from Plaid executives, as well as a in-house Plaid resources for free. The really interesting thing here I have to give a shout out to is it was inspired by an internal hackathon last summer amid Black Lives Matter protests. And so a couple employees and two managers put this together and are now going to be incubating startups, which I think will be really exciting. I think it's cool. I'm a little surprised they're not including some money with this. You think they could throw some dollars into this bucket just to help these companies survive. But I mean, certainly attaching your horse to Plaid's wagon or your wagon to Plaid's horse, whatever the analogy is supposed to be can't be a bad place to be if you're a fintech startup. You're going to be right near the epicenter of what's going on and certainly able to access more less expensive plot services and proof your gross margins, whatever. But I can see this working well and being honestly pretty cool. I like it. Danny? No, I agree 100%. We're going to talk more about electrical vehicles and some of the dynamics of corporate VC in a bit. But I do think this is a classic strategy of, look, if you get people to build on top of the platform, either fund them or in this case, just help them build out great products. You're locking in customers who are going to be built on top of that functionality, you know, hopefully for a decade. And if a couple of those are super successful, obviously that accrues to Plaid through its own APIs and platform fees. Just to put a cap on that, we've seen a lot of this recently. Encino went public last year. They're built on the Salesforce platform, which I think was called force.com. And now it has some other horrible corporate name. But I mean, Salesforce does well when people build on top of them. They also have a venture capital arm. They invest in companies that build on their platform, creating this lovely flywheel of money for themselves. Not surprising to see Plaid do this. I'll just add, last week we talked about how while Plaid's no longer merging with Visa didn't have the chilling effect that usually happens when there's failed M&As, Plaid definitely has learning lessons that are super valuable because every fintech startup now knows it's not invincible with massive mergers. And so they talked about in this incubator, they're going to be addressing the regulatory hurdles, probably in a way that's a little bit more honest and transparent than what we would ever get them to say to the press. Moving on from fintech, Natasha, you've also written a lot about edtech, and there was a, a really prime round this week that you wrote up coming out of Africa. Ulesson, which is an edtech startup based in Nigeria, landed a 7.5 million Series A. The startup uses SD cards to sell digital curriculum to students across countries in Africa. Africa. The reason they use SD cards is you can plug it into your Android. There's a high mobile penetration of Androids in countries around Africa. So you can plug in the SD card and access digital content in an offline way that doesn't require streaming. So cool. I read this before the show and I was like, oh, that's awesome. Because if you have limited bandwidth and you know you have a very homogenous device network and Android phones take SD cards, but iPhones don't, which is bad. 
it's a brilliant way to get around distribution and to bring what I presume is very high level education content to folks who might otherwise not be able to access it. This is tech empowering people. This is what we love to see. I was hype. I thought it was very interesting as well that the founder doesn't think he has any competitors precisely because of this problem that he's mentioned that even Baiju's, which is the ed tech giant in India, has done super, super well, hasn't figured out a pathway for distribution in Africa. And so when I was reading about the SD cards and the distribution here, I was like, this seems much more native to where people need the technology today. 100%. And the natural COVID angle that came up for this ed tech startup is it launched into the market just weeks before the coronavirus was declared a pandemic. And that ended up helping them a ton, even though it forked their ability to advertise as much as they wanted to. They ended up seeing 70% month over month customer growth. Take that as you will, because I'm sure they had a small base, but still, still strong growth. But the founder, Sim Shigaya, said that the digital infrastructure gains that happened during COVID will allow them to go online entirely by Q2. And so we're seeing this edtech startup in the early stage go from entering houses through SD cards, but actually seeing enough promise in certain countries around Africa, that they can even dish the SD cards one day. It's also important to note, not just in Nigeria, but Western Africa in general, that you know it's one of the fastest growing populations anywhere in the world. Nigeria True. is on track to be one of the top, what, I believe, five or six countries in the world in terms of population. Hundreds of millions of more people expected over the next couple of decades. So huge numbers of young people using education. And Natasha, this was led by Owl Ventures. Is that correct? Yeah. Have they done a lot overseas? They actually recently had announced their first China investment. So I think they're starting to look more international. Makes a lot of sense. Al Ventures is one of the biggest edtech focused funds that's, you know, starting to have all the US based unicorns. But as we've talked about on the podcast a ton, the promise is really international. Speaking of international, let's segue to our next funding round. Alex, you talked to Trip Actions. During COVID, how dare you? Actually, we emailed. <laughs> Trip Actions last year in February, I covered them because they put together a $500 million credit facility for their new liquid service, which was going to help companies better pay for corporate travel without having individual employees forced to put stuff on their own cards. And I thought it was really cool. That's like February 25th. A month later, after COVID hits, crashes the travel market, tanks their revenue, they had to lay off hundreds of staff. And I think at that point, they became almost like a poster child for like what COVID can do to certain parts of the industry. Like Toast, the restaurant software company, also took pretty sharp hits right away. What we kind of missed was Trip Actions raised some convertible note slash money. It was kind of an oddly phrased in their announcement in last June, like $125 million pre-IPO convertible money. And then today, they announced they raised $155 million more, led by injuries and a previous investor and a couple of other folks. Now, what matters is they didn't raise this money at a flat valuation to their last round back in 2019. They raised it at an up valuation. They raised it at a $5 billion mark. Now, one, that's a lot of money. Two, it's up 25% from their last round, but it shows an enormous amount of confidence in the company and the return in business travel. And Danny and I were vamping about this before the show, but like the company told us again via email, that corporate travel is 20% back and it's growing by like three to 6% a week, which means that their revenues are probably still rather depressed compared to last year's numbers, but their investors are betting on the ability for them to grow. And Danny, I'm curious with your investor hat on how you would rate that bet. It's interesting, right? So it's a $5 billion company, theoretically towards the end of its not life cycle, but certainly in terms of IPOing in public markets. What's nuts to trip action is it's not a SaaS play. I was reading up on this business model in Forbes from their interview last year, and the company charges a $25 trip fee for every trip plan through trip actions. So when you hear that the number of trips has gone down by 80%, that should directly correlate essentially to their revenue. So the, the company is a fifth of the revenue based on their own numbers that it was like a year ago. When you think about like a long-term bet, that's a huge deficit to recover from. 
at a time when most people are not thinking about travel entertainment expenses at the corporate level. It's not a high priority for a lot of CFOs. So I give them a credit because I think it's actually in the three to six year time range that they were looking at an IPO, not a 12 to 18 month. So this is not like mezzanine pre-IPO capital in my view, but much more long-term. I would say an investment in trip actions and investment or strong belief that remote work isn't going to play out the way that most people think it will, which is that it's going to be distributed. It's going to be an all hands or an offsite every quarter instead of every two weeks, like both of you had been doing <laughs> before COVID. You know, maybe one day we'll look at it and say that this was cheap capital and those investors were super smart, but it is a lot more surprising. Notably, A16Z led this round. And it was an inside round because A16Z was an earlier funder of the company. But Natasha's point is super interesting. And I, I had the exact same thought. I was like, what about this distributed world? And so I, I asked him, I'm like, you know, what does that look like? And they said, you know, look, if you go distributed and remote, you may end up with more total trips. And I was like, I can almost see that because I was planning on going to San Francisco like eight times last year because I'm remote. I went once because of COVID, but I can almost see the argument for that. I don't know. But Natasha, it's the exact right point to ask. Tons of EV news this week talking about trips and trip planning. Hopefully your planes land better than a lot of auto driving cars. But we had two major funding announcements. So let's just do those top real quick. So Microsoft and GM led a $2 billion investment into Cruise for its robo-taxi that was encompassing a sort of Azure cloud services agreement as part of Microsoft's investment. So Cruise is going to build its platform on top of Microsoft's Azure cloud. And then Rivian, which is noted for its all-electric pickup truck, which it launched at the 2018 LA Auto Show, raised $2.65 billion to sort of launch its electric pickup. And that was led by a whole group of people, including T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, and a bunch of other rich groups. And that round was supported by Amazon. Rivian has actually raised $700 million from Amazon in a previous round. And this most recent round, Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund also participated. So two huge rounds, two massive corporate backers, two clouds, one thesis. And the thesis seems to be that self-driving cars and electric cars are the future of automotive, period. Is that fair? Totally. I mean, I think that the cliche that our resident automotive reporter, Kirsten Korsak, told me to avoid is smartphone on wheels is the future. <laughs> but it really is. And I think that these two back-to-back -back huge raises, I mean, Rivian to date has raised $8 billion since the start of 2019. Wow. That's a single line that packs a punch. <laughs> Another company I'll give a shout out to is Zooks, backed by Amazon that about maybe a month ago now announced that it had finally gone from plans to prototype after six years of development. And so we're seeing these companies get to a place where they can be a little bit less hype and more action. And that's why this GM Microsoft deal caught my eye, because not only is it $2 billion at a $30 billion valuation, but it, it has robo-taxi rollout in the headline, and nothing makes my heart beat faster than the idea of being shepherded around by a smart computer. Just put me in the car, let me snooze, let me go to the Boston airport without thinking about it. It's going to be amazing. And if it's electric powered too, so that way I'm not hurting the environment at the same time, ah, oh, sign me up. But what's amazing is these two companies are worth nearly $60 billion combined. I think the other piece here is from the corporate VC angle, in Cruise's case, it's mostly about cloud services. And self-driving cars has an enormous amount of work around computer vision, AI, machine learning, interpreting the driving environment as these things go. And you've got to get that into the cloud in order to process all that data. So this investment is like a beautiful synchronicity with Azure. And then Rivian also has, quote unquote, a cloud component, although it is mostly just an EV. The other thing here, though, is that Amazon's going to launch 100,000 delivery vans. And theoretically, Rivian is going to be the electric delivery vehicle of choice for Amazon. To summarize what Danny just said, it's very important, but a little bit technical. The Azure bet into Cruise for us feels like a data computing play for Microsoft's Azure platform that competes with Amazon's AWS. And while there's probably an AWS component to Rivian, which Amazon invested in, 
We think probably this is Amazon more looking to get first look at vehicles that it might want to roll out for its broad supply chain. Because keep in mind that Amazon doesn't just use FedEx and UPS and, and USPS. They have airplanes, they have trucks, they have their own 18-wheelers, and they burn a lot of fuel and generate a lot of carbon. And a lot of companies want to lower that. So this might be a way to do that. The last note on the mobility section is that we heard news this week that Bolt Mobility is launching into 48 new markets. 18 of those are college campuses. They also bought assets of another micromobility startup last mile. The interesting thing here is that micromobility suffered in the beginning of the pandemic. It had to shut down in several markets, and now it's rebounding after it tweaked its business model. And this is what made me laugh the most when I read the story is Bold realized it made sense to partner with local companies. That is probably it for the mobility section. Should we talk about GPS drama? There was a fun little story from late last week. The Department of Transportation evaluated roughly 11 different companies on location tracking. So it was a huge study. It was 500 pages. Don't read it. It's a lot of words. But the the key piece was they actually looked at a couple of different new next generation location-based startups. So among them was Satel's. I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Satelli's, which raised $26 in venture capital. NextNav, which has raised a total of $300 in venture capital. Helen Systems, which has raised a seed around so a bunch of these new next generation GPS providers who might provide resilience and redundancy to the GPS system, which is government run through the Pentagon. NextNav came out ahead. None of the systems came close to being comprehensive replacements for GPS. So there's currently no private replacement for the Pentagon military run GPS system that we all use in our cell phones and our cars. But we're getting better and better in terms of distribution, lowering costs, making it easier to get more precise coordinates, which is important because when we're talking about mobility, GPS is frankly, the most critical technology you can have when it comes to self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles. As the resident optimist at the show, the fact that a VC-backed startup is pretty close to being a backup is not a small deal. And they had raised 300 million bucks. And I remember the chief budget officer for the Pentagon swung by my university years ago and was like, you know, the Pentagon spends $3 billion a day. <laughs> it, it is amazing to see what the private markets can do. And obviously, I mean, GPS has been around 30, 40, 50 years. But now that we know what the final applications are, we can do a lot to sort of improve that market. But let's move on. We're going to have a whole section on media. We have a ton of stories. I'm going to start with a quick acquisition for a company that I don't know how many people actually read, but it was actually an extraordinarily successful company, which is kind of a shame that no one really knows about it in the marketplace. But Wattpad, which is the number one fan fiction platform on the web, officially sold yesterday on Wednesday to South Korea's largest search portal, Naver, for $600 million bucks. According to the press release and some of the data we got, Wattpad is 14 years old, 90 million users, and uh, it's going to merge into Naver's Webtoon app, which has 67 million users. The company has raised about 117 million, including a, quote, 3.5 million Series A led by Union Square Ventures, I want to say like nine years ago. Wow. So I don't know if back then those were more traditional rounds. I mean, 3.5 probably bought you actually 15, 20, 25% of the time. So, you know, even though Union Square wasn't kind of part of the story more recently, it sounds like a huge win. I mean, if they maintain some level of their ownership, a $600 million exit on a $3.5 million round, it's not a bad MOI. No, not at all. I think that this goes to show that user-generated content does still have a place in the market, is enormously popular. Just as a reader, I want to say this to me legitimizes fanfic to some degree. Now, I'm not a big consumer of fanfic because there's too much fic for me to read. And so I'm always behind on books that I want to get to. But one notable example of this is the redemption of time which is a companion novel to the three body problem trilogy and it started off as fanfic and has now been essentially made quasi canon by the original author of the series and it is tremendous just as the whole series is and it really really changed my perspective on this so shout out wattpad for making fanfic uh, sustainable and also making a lot of money at the same time let's end by talking about the andreessen horowitz media stories that came out earlier this week 
I'll run through them and then I want both of your thoughts as much as possible. So first, the information reported that Andreessen Horowitz is launching an opinion publication as part of its broader media strategy. And then Eric Newcomer wrote a piece looking into Andreessen Horowitz's media strategy, why it doesn't respond to reporters, where it sees its podcast ambition and its content ambition going next. It brought a lot of healthy conversation, I think, to tech Twitter more than usual when it comes to tech and media. This is where I was really skeptical. So apparently Andreessen's not talking to the press anymore. And yet there were two stories about the same topic, about the same firm not talking to the press that came out within half an hour of each other. So something somewhere is being coordinated. Or they were both working on a story. One of them went out and the other one clicked publish right away to not fall behind the narrative. I mean, Probably. there is a innocuous yeah. explanation, but Danny's saying where there's smoke, there's fire and where there's fire, there's PR. <laughs> exactly. Yes, the fiery PR person. I actually think this is a, an interesting strategy because to me, what's actually more interesting is what it's going to do to a lot of other venture firms. So according to some of the numbers, we got 20 people out of Andreessen's 200 person workforce, which in and of itself is quite large at this point. Most firms can't sustain a marketing editorial team in the dozens. And so I think one of the interesting dynamics here is, you know, as Andreessen kind of goes its own universe and own podcast and its own reality, let's call it. Yeah. A lot of the other firms are going to have to engage in a different way in order to compete, and they can't build out their own publications themselves. So I actually expect a doubling down on the tech press as folks try to respond to Andreessen trying to grab its own audience. I've been asked about this a couple of times in the last few months about, you know, how do you feel about VCs being relatively anti-media and, you know, the falling of the relationship between the tech press and the tech industry? It's, it's fine. It's like eight people who are pissy. It's not most people. <laughs> and keep in mind, that like, yeah. like 99% of VCs will email you back real quick if you're like, hey, I, need to, I, I want to talk to you about a thing I'm writing a story about. So the tech media versus tech press thing is a small click of VCs as opposed to the entire market. And Dreesen, of course, is leading the conversation. In one of their things, they were like, this person who's going to write for us is going to be upbeat about tech. I, I, I don't know. It, do, it, it doesn't bake my noodle. My first read too, Alex, is it's content marketing. It's not anything other than content marketing. It's not journalism. And I think a lot of the fandoms that come associated with anti-press VC personalities don't want to read journalism about their gods in VC. So this is fine for them. I think there'll be readers that want a lot more than that. What I'm impressed by in this case is how many people they can afford to put at this. Because if they have 40 folks on this team at Andreessen, that's larger than the TechCrunch newsroom. It just goes to show the resource differential between wealthy investors and us uh, humble folk out here in the uh, the corporate media world. Benedict Evans, who was formerly at Andreessen, has this quip that A16Z is a media company with a monetization through VC. And uh, ironically, media companies have been like that for decades, right? The New York Times used to own sports teams yeah. and used to monetize through stadium tickets. It's not uncommon to find that a lot of the ancillary businesses drive the revenues and media is sort of the promotional arm for other related businesses, real estate, sports, et cetera. So I, I just think of it as the next evolution. But talking about evolution of media, the last story we're going to talk to is actually about one of our frenemies, Forbes, the nice people over there, including Alex Conrad. Yeah. But Forbes announced this week that they're going to launch essentially a Substack competitor. So Natasha, tell us a little bit more about that. Forbes is going to hire 20 or 30 writers with big followings to create a newsletter platform. You said it perfectly, Danny. It's like its own Substack. It's going to give them the resources to do the paid newsletter thing well but in some way redirect that traffic back to Forbes. You know, we saw when Morning Brew got acquired by BI, the way that newsrooms are investing in strong newsletter followings and fans of certain writers. It will be super cool to see how they do it well. I'm biased because he said they're a friend of me, but I will nerd out when I see the launch and I will keep nerding out as they roll it out. Also, this is different than Substack. It's not designed to be an exact cognate. So we're putting them in competition with each other because they are, but they're not copies of one another. For example, in the Forbes case, there is 
marketing and editing that's provided, then that's a key thing that you're going <laughs> right. to need. And then also there's salary and benefits associated with it. And so what you're kind of doing is building like a minor fiefdom under the Forbes Aegis is branded by you, but you get to lean on their infra and other operational support, which is more attractive to me as a writer than going full on Substack because I'm very bad with commas. And so I need someone coming behind me and hammering the copy clean. And so I don't think I would ever go full indie Substack because I don't think it would be the best move. But if TechCrunch fired me, this would be my absolute first call. It's enticing to me as a person who writes, and I, I think I have like seven readers now, maybe eight on a good day. I don't know if that's enough, but I mean, this is definitely a cool model and one that I hope does well. And I mean, we're seeing Forbes go from the intense cover story to this next iteration. It doesn't tell us anything new about the move to digital, but it is definitely a loud signal from Forbes. In the meantime, TechCrunch is going to be a blog until we die. All right, that's equity for this week. We love you all. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.